Welcome. It is our final regenerate of the meeting of the semester. And uh, so tonight, I have the distinct privilege of being able to, uh, of wrapping up the book of Nehemiah with you guys. How many of you guys have been blessed by the book of Nehemiah that we've been studying this semester? Even with all the weird Hebrew names, right? Amen. Amen. So here's, um, I have a lot to get through, but we're going to be preaching out of, I'm going to be preaching out of Nehemiah chapter 13 today. How many of you guys have uh, watched the Lord of the Rings trilogy? Yes? Okay. How many of you have read the books? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I just, um, so, in the Lord of the Rings books, right, which is arguably, I, I have to admit that I'm a nerd, I'm a huge fan of Tolkien's world because J.R.R. Tolkien was a master of fantasy and world building, and he set the stage for all kinds of amazing nerdy things later on that came after the Lord of the Rings. But in the third book of the Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, there's this whole, there's this whole amazing thing that happens. You know, Frodo, this little, this wee hobbit, takes Sauron's ring of power, and he's the Lord of Darkness, and he's trying to cover all of Middle Earth in darkness. And then he takes this ring and and, and withstands all these temptations and all these difficulties, and he climbs Mount Doom and he casts the ring of fire back, or the ring of power back into the fires of the chasm from which it came. And then at the same time, there's this huge battle for Middle Earth, and Aragorn, son of Erethorn, finally reclaims the throne of Gondor and reclaims the throne for his father Elisar, and or for the house of Elisar for the first time. And am I am I getting a little too nerdy? Anyway. Um, all this stuff happens, and the whole point is there's these hobbits, and these hobbits are like, we just want to go back to the Shoyer, right? Um, back to their house, back to their home, and, and Frodo, and, hello? Um, <laughs> Fro- so Frodo, and, um, and Samwise Gamgee, and Peregrine Took, and Marietta Brandybuck, they all return to the Shire. And you would think, from a narrative, literary standpoint, that the story should end right there, where it's like, dun, 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 and then they destroy the ring of power, and then they finally go home, and they get to lay in their soft, warm beds in the shire and enjoy the rest of their lives, right? That would be the way you think it happens, but in the book, that's not what happens. Because they go home, and if anybody is familiar with the chapter entitled, The Scouring of the Shire, you are aware of the fact that the shire was in bad shape when they returned. In fact, when the hobbits come back, they realize that their entire... Their entire livelihood has been destroyed by orcs because this evil wizard, Saruman, has taken over their their land, and then they have to do this whole... After they've been through the adventure of a lifetime and this massive war, they have to go home and fight another one, and it's like, that's, this is exhausting, and this is not a good way to end the book, right? And uh, <laughs> But that's how the book ends. It ends on this weird, like, it's like... From a narrative standpoint, you sh- it should be going like up and up and up and up, and then you have your climax, and then it goes down with your falling action. But it's like climax, and then it kind of stumbles into the ending. You're like, that's weird. Why is it like that? Why And why is it that sometimes when we have climactic moments in our lives, spiritual highs in our life, why is it that sometimes it seems like there's another battle on the other side of it? We're like, I thought I just had a, I thought I just had a victory. I thought I just had a triumph in my life, right? Tonight we're going to be talking about fixing some things. We're going to be talking about taking care of business, Nehemiah's way, and uh, we're going to be talking about leadership and sanctification. Somebody say sanctification. Sanctification, Sanctification. yeah, this is a great theological term, Um, and it is a term that's uh, prolific in the book of Romans and elsewhere, but we're going to be looking at Nehemiah chapter 13 at the role of leadership in sanctification, at the role of leadership in sanctification, because This whole book that we've been studying, we've been calling this study Legacy and Leadership. Nehemiah is a leader. He's not necessarily a prophet. He's not a prophet. 
He's not a teacher per se. He's a governor. He's a leader. He's a former Secret Service agent. He is a former cupbearer to the king of Persia. And he's returned to Jerusalem, and he leads this effort to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. And when he does that, it, you know, it's this great moment where everybody's like, yeah, the wall was built, you know. And if you guys have been studying the book of Nehemiah, you know it's an exciting time because the people of, of Judah have been working at this and working at this. And finally, the wall is complete. Finally, in spite of the taunting of their enemies, in spite of all the things that are come against them, the wall is up, and they throw a huge celebration. And if you were at Friendsgiving last week, you know that the celebration could be heard for miles around, right? It was amazing. Sorry, Friendsgiving was two weeks ago. My bad. Uh, anyway, it was heard for miles and miles around. So it's an incredible moment, right? And you think, from a literary standpoint, this is how you know the Bible. One of the reasons you know the Bible is legit because sometimes the storytelling doesn't make sense. If this was actually just a story that was made up to be a nice parable about what life should be like, it would end at chapter 12. Because the people of God, they pushed through, they built the wall, they did all the right things, and Nehemiah pulled everybody together, and it's this great effort where it's like, ha ha, hallelujah, we built the wall. And then we just end it there, right? Ta-da, end of story. We all go home, Jerusalem's safe now, we're ready for the Messiah to come. But that's unfortunately not quite what happens. In fact, what we know uh, from this, this passage is going to take place 12 years after the fact. Okay, So some time has gone by. And let's see what happens in chapter 13 of Nehemiah. So turn to chapter 13 of Nehemiah if you're not already there. And I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. The elect Standard Version for you Calvinists. Um, <laughs> <laughs> One person got it. Okay. Um, and it says this. This is uh, this is the final chapter of Nehemiah. Are you guys ready? Is it okay if I preach the word of God tonight a little bit? Remember, if somebody in Regenerate is preaching something that speaks to your soul, you've got to say. You guys got to stand up and shout. This is your last chance of the entire semester to stand up and shout and wave a hanky if God's speaking something to you. Okay? So let's let's get into it. Nehemiah chapter 13. On that day... They read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Verse 4. Now before this, Elisha, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers in the contributions to the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, and I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture to buy out of the chamber. I then, then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and they brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Verse 10. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is, this, is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses, and I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, 
and as their assistant, Hanan, the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah. For they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Verse 14. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days I saw in Judah people trading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. And I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on the city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Verse 19. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come to the Sabbath. They come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them, and cursed them, and beat some of them, and pulled out their hair. And I made them take oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we just want to give you this time right now. Open our eyes and open our ears in the, in the time that we have remaining to just hear you. We want to hear you, but not, not only do we want to hear you, we want to be sanctified. We want to be changed by you. We want something to be moved in the spirit. So, Holy Spirit, we avail ourselves to you right now, and we ask that you would speak in the name of Jesus, the great Redeemer. We love you, God. So, Lord, let, the, let my words be your words tonight. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer, in whom we trust. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. So, leadership. Really, what this is about is leadership in crisis. Leadership in crisis. There's three, there's a, three different times when, when uh, Nehemiah pulls back from the story that he's telling, and then he says, it's just him speaking to God, and he says, remember me, oh my God, for what I've done. Well, also he says, remember them, they're jerks. Um, but I mean, it's a really interesting passage, right? And it's such an interesting way to end the book. See, this is the thing, when it comes to, and, and when we look at the nation of Israel, Often what it paints for us is a portrait of our own spiritual lives. Because as it says in the New Testament that we have been called as a nation of priests. It says this in 1 Peter. 
So we then become grafted into the house of God. See, the people of Israel were set aside by God. It says in Genesis 12 that he called their forefather Abraham so that their nation could be, bring a blessing to the entire world, could bring a blessing to the entire world. And so he set them apart for his purposes. He gave them specific laws to follow and promised them that if they followed those laws, they would be blessed, right? Among those laws, there was a few different things. Three things that got broken here. Number one, take a day off. They didn't take a day off. You're like, how many of you are like, that sounds like a good rule. I would follow that rule if that was, hey, that, that's a good one, right? You should take a day off. Number two, y'all are, are intermingling with some weird people, okay? Y'all have some weird relationship issues going on and it's not cool, okay? How many of you know that relationships can get weird and do weird things to people who weren't weird before, right? So uh, there's there's some things that God is trying to address and he does it. It's interesting, though, to me that he does it through somebody who's a leader. He does it through Nehemiah. And I love how passionate he is. Throughout this book, we've seen that Nehemiah is somebody who's orderly, right? He makes lists. He keeps records. He's very orderly about how he inspects things. And he's very thought out in everything he does. But he's also somebody who's very passionate. Very, very passionate. And this is one of the things I love. See, this is the thing about our spiritual lives. And what we see here is this. The people of God, God had set them aside for his purposes so that he could bring the one that they called Hamashiach, or the Messiah, the chosen one, into the world. What the people of Israel did not understand at this point was it was not just them who were to be a blessing to the world, but there was one of them who was going to be a blessing to the entire world. There was going to be one chosen one who would change history because then it wouldn't just be the Israelites who were blessed by God, but it would be the entire world. But they couldn't see that yet prophetically. And so the people of God were trusting him, trusting and believing in his promise that he was going to fulfill it. And it's at this point, it's about four, now, now we're looking at about 436 B.C., okay? It's, it's been a few years. It's, in fact, it's been 12 years since Nehemiah built the wall around Jerusalem to keep the city safe. And it's interesting, though, that it says, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. Now, here's one of the things that we need to understand here. Number one, context is everything. Context is everything, okay? So, this is when he says to command people, he commands that people of foreign descent should be removed from the assembly. This is not an excuse for racism, it is not a justification for that. God knew something very, very, very important, and it is this that the people of God would be led astray by those who are from other nations because it is so easy to become an idolater. It is so easy to, to, to replace God with something that's not God. It is so easy to take God out of the center of your life and replace it with something else. In those days, it was more common for them to actually like have a wooden or stone idol that they would make sacrifices to because they assumed that if they did that, then the spring rains would come or they'd have more children or they'd have something good happen to them if they did X, Y, Z for this statue. Nowadays, it's a little more subtle. Nowadays, our idols look more like relationships, cell phones, Things that take our time and our effort and our focus away from God and away from things that are important. We wouldn't call them idols because that's kind of an ugly word. But it performs the same function. So look, this is the thing though. When it comes to your spiritual life, your spiritual, the biggest obstacle to your spiritual growth is not the attack of the enemy, okay? It's not circumstantial difficulties. We all go through those. It is not lack of knowledge either. It's not even lack of knowledge about scripture or about God or about about the Christian faith or whatever, your biggest obstacle in your spiritual walk is apathy. 
Apathy is the, in what this is what this final chapter of Nehemiah illustrates. He goes away for 12 years and everything just falls apart. Apathy. Apathy. They forget the reason. They forget the amazing thing that happened. They forget about how they built the wall in like 50 days. They forget about how God rescued them from their enemies that surrounded them. They forgot about how their ancestors were delivered from Egypt and from their other enemies over and over and over. They forgot about God and then they became lazy. And it is so easy for us as Christians to become apathetic. It's easy to not care. It's easy to sit on your social media feed and to look at issues in the world and not care. It's easy to ignore people that you don't want to hang out with and just not care. It's easy to not care. That's easy. But Jesus said that the way to him is narrow. The, the gate is narrow and the right way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So, Apathy is actually the most dangerous thing in your spiritual life. See, they read from the scroll of Moses. They separate those from foreign descent so that they could eliminate or eradicate idolatry. But there's some problems. Problem number one, Eliashib houses Tobiah. You're like, what's wrong with Tobiah? Besides the fact that his name makes him kind of sound like a square. He is, um, <laughs> Tobiah is one of the enemies of the people of God. He's one of the people who is taunting them when they are building the wall. And Eliashib was like, I may or may not have housed him in the temple <laughs> where we're supposed to be worshiping God. And I may have set up like a hotel room for him or like a free Airbnb because then he won't hurt us or anything like that. Sorry. And, to, and Nehemiah's like, what? <laughs> Excuse me. And then he's, he's like, what's going on? This is, where, this is where we're supposed to bring in our stuff, right? This is where we're supposed to bring in crops. This is the thing. In the Old Testament law, the Levites and the priests who ran the temple, who were responsible for, for administering worship before God, they didn't have their own property, right? So no, no property means no food. No food means that you're counting on other people's food to, you know, to support you, which is why he commanded the people of Israel to give a tithe or a tenth of their income, which was you know, a tenth of their sheep, a tenth of their grain, a tenth of... I don't know, what's another Middle Eastern animal? Jackals? I don't know. You know, like they were there. They were like, yeah, camels. Yeah, there's something like that. You know, you bring a tenth of whatever you own. It's like, I only own one camel. Do I like cut off a tenth of it? I don't know. I don't know what other, there's, I'm sure there's rules about that. But anyway, they're supposed to bring a tenth of everything in there, which is why at your church they say, well, we'll see the tithes and offerings. Like, what is that? It's just a tenth. So they bring a tenth of their stuff in, and then um, they give it to the priest, and it was supposed to be stored up in this spot. But instead, all that stuff had been cleared out so that Tobiah could sit there and have a place in the middle of, of God's people. How many of us make room for the enemy in our lives? How many of us make room uh, for things that have no, no place in our lives, in our hearts, in our thinking? See, right in the heart of the city of God, right in the heart of this place that's supposed to be a center of worship, there's somebody lounging around. Somebody lounging around just having his way. And so he's like, this is stupid. So he gets in there. He just kicks all the stuff out. He's like, get all his stuff out of here. I want that stuff in here. It's like, I want my things in here. Get his stuff out. It's like, get his crap out. I want my stuff. You know, ever notice that? If it's somebody else's stuff, it's crap. But if it's yours, it's stuff. You know, yeah. like, get his crap out of here. Move this stuff in. You know, so they, they do that. And then, so the solution, the solution to the problem is leadership. See, he shows up and he leads. 
Nobody was taking the lead. They're like, well, he's he's kind of like he's he's protecting. Like if if we upset him, we would we would hate to upset him because if we did, then it would result in some really bad things. So we just don't want to you know get him upset. <laughs> How many times do we like put up with things because we're like, well, I'm a Christian. I'm supposed to be nice. I'll just let it happen. I'll just let it slide. Whatever it is that's going on with my friends or my family, whatever. I won't really care that much because it makes me uncomfortable to address that issue head on. Nehemiah is fearless though. He goes in. He's like. Get out this place. You don't live here. This is where the storehouse is. This is where God's people are supposed to give. This is a place of generosity. You're just a taker. You're a consumer. You don't belong here. God's people are givers, and this is the place where that giving is supposed to go. So the solution is good leadership. He is a president for 12 years. And I'm, I'm sure that Nehemiah is looking at the situation going, man, I could have done a better job raising up leaders because look at this. I love how he just rage throws everything. Verses 8 through 9. I was very angry. I love that. And I threw all the I threw all the household furniture to buy out of the chambers. Nice. Just rage throws it. So then he uh, then the Levitical portions are restored. He finds out, that, and then because this is the issue, then he finds out that the Levites aren't even being paid; that they're out in the fields. And he's like, uh, "What? Are you serious right now? Are you serious? Okay, you guys need. To, we're gonna cut paychecks for you guys. Come back in. You know, we're gonna we're gonna make sure this is going properly. You guys should not be out there working the fields. You should be here in the temple. So, what, what's the big problem here? The real problem is this: worship was supposed to be at the center of Israel, right? Worship is supposed to be at the center of Jerusalem, and instead, it had been completely neglected. The first and biggest problem in spiritually with Israel. Is that they are lacking worship at the center of their lives. One of the most dangerous things for us spiritually is when worship is lacking at the center of our lives, at the core of who you are. See, Paul compares our body to a temple of the Holy Spirit. Who's residing in your temple? What do you spend your time thinking about, dwelling about, putting effort towards, putting in time, putting in money? Because that thing is what you worship. It could be a relationship, it could be a job, it could be lots of different things. It could be doing good deeds even. It could be something that's innocuous like that. But if that is what drives you, that, my friend, is what you worship. Worship is at the center of the people of God, which is why Nehemiah goes, problem number one, we need to reestablish this. Kick Tobiah out, get his stuff out of here. We need to get the Levites back in here, and we need to reestablish worship. There are so many Christians whose their entire the entirety of their Christian existence is just well, you know, I I try to pray sometimes, and I and I and I get it. We're busy. We 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 do all those things, and I'm going to address that in a second too. But we tend it's we tend to just drift away because we lose worship at the center of our lives. Worship isn't at the center; it's somewhere out to the side. It's something I enjoy on a Sunday morning or on a Thursday night, but it's not at the center. My life isn't worship. Worship is an activity. Those who understand worship is more than just an activity, but a lifestyle are understanding that where worship's proper place is. Is Jesus Christ at the center of your life or something else? Is your anxiety at the center of your life? Is your fear at the center of your life? Is your thought life at the center of your life? Is your overcoming sin at the center of your life? You're just thinking about, I have these issues I need to overcome, and self-help is at the center of your life. Eh. Worship needs to be at the center of your life. Worship of Jesus and Jesus alone. That is the first priority. Second priority that he addresses is this. The Sabbath is profaned. You're like, why? what is the big deal about Hashabbat? Is what it's, what it's called in Hebrew. Sh Everybody say Shabbat. Shabbat. 
Yeah. So if you were a Jewish kid and you tried to pick up the phone on Saturday, your grandmother would say, ah, not on Shabbat, right? Not on Sabbath, right? <laughs> not on Shabbat, you know, so Shabbat, the Sabbath. And he's saying, the Sabbath is being profane. People are working on the Sabbath. It says that they're, he said, uh, uh, it says in those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses. This is where, verse 15. They're bringing in heaps of grain, loading them on donkeys. All this stuff is happening right underneath their nose. The Sabbath is being profaned. And, and not only that, but in verse 16, we read that foreigners are making a profit. People who aren't even from Israel are making a profit. And I love that whole episode because he's just like, nope. Priority, okay, priority number one, temple worship. We've got that figured out. Priority number two, why are we not obeying the law of God? Because he told us to take a day off and you guys are still trying to make money on your day off. Are you for real right now? And then there's these guys going, hey, we're selling stuff. He's like, no, 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 no. Close the gate, close it. And they're like, but we want it to close the gate. Okay, okay, okay. Close the gate. They close the gate. He's really mad. You know, and then uh, he, they close the gate. And then the people are like, all right, well, uh, bro, we're, well, we're just going to like, you know, we're just going to sell some stuff. We'll just, we'll just camp out here for the night, you know, and we'll, just, we'll see you in the morning, right? Yeah. And then they uh, camp out below the wall. And he's like, if you don't get away from there, like, I can picture him like up on the wall, like, hey. You get down there, I'm gonna come down there, I'm gonna arrest you, I will beat you, I will cut you, you know, like, and like, and then they're like, jeez, you know, like, so they, they pack up, they leave, they're like, that's crazy. And so he's like, get out of here, I don't wanna see you here, the doors will be shut, and also I'm gonna post people here just to make sure it stays shut until the Sabbath is over. You guys need to learn to take a day off because busyness is not at the heart of God. We are consumed with activity. We are, it's easy to get consumed with activity, but busyness is not at the heart of God. In fact, it says that Jesus, in, in Ephesians 2, it says he himself, that is speaking of Jesus, is our peace. Right? If he himself is our peace, then busyness of heart is not at the heart of who God is. This is the same reason why when Jesus comes into the house of Mary and Martha, and Martha's doing all the good stuff. She's keeping the house clean. She's preparing food. and She's making things ready for her guests. Mary is just sitting there at Jesus' feet, enjoying his presence, speaking with him. And then he says, she's the one who's picked the better thing. Martha, you, you're so concerned with being busy, but she's chosen the better thing, which is just to be with me. Do you have time for Jesus in your life? Do you have time to pray? Do you have time to read your Bible? And importantly, do you have time for other Christians in your life? Do you have time for other believers? Because if you don't, you're missing out on something. Don't let busyness occupy you so much that you're unoccupied with the King of Kings. That'll preach right there. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> Somebody shout amen on that. Anyway. <laughs> All right. No, so problem two, the Sabbath is profane, profane. And then problem three, I wanted to address this because it's, because it's like, um, what? Intermarriage. See, in, the, in verse 23, we read about how the Jews had married Ashdodites, Ammonites, and Moabites. And their kids didn't even know the language of the Hebrews. So this is a problem. What's the solution? Leadership, once again. And so he confronts the Jews who had intermarried. This is the interesting thing. You go, okay, what's, what is going on here, and why is intermarried? This sounds super, because when I first read this, I think this sounds super racist. Like, God is like, oh, yeah, you can't be with those people, you know, because they're, they're different from you. God is not afraid of differentness, okay? He made, we're, we're all God's children, right? We're all made in a, in a different way. We are, each of us reflects a distinct facet of him, which is why our cultures and our ethnicities are absolutely important because at the end of the age, every knee will bow before him. Every tribe and tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And if your language and your culture and your ethnicity are not there, then the kingdom of God is missing something. Amen. 
that'll preach. Anyway, this is the thing. Context. The context is there's people here who are, they're, um, they're intermarrying with those who committed idolatry. And Nehemiah points to this. He's like, don't you guys get this? We can't. We cannot. Because he's realizing something. He realizes what the prophet Jeremiah said when he said that the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can understand it? He knew that poisonous relate, that relationships with the wrong people were going to drive them off the deep end spiritually. It was just going to take a slight step to the side and suddenly they were right back in idolatry. And everything that Nehemiah had worked for, everything that they built the wall for, all these things that he had done and everything that he had put his, all his life and energy into would be wasted. See, worship, in order for worship to be at the center of life and for the busyness to not determine who they were, they also needed to have right relationships. And I'm telling you right now, as somebody who's ministered to young people for several years, one of the things that I see derailing people's faith easily, more than anything else, is poisonous relationships. Easily. Because all it takes is the one person to grab a hold of your heart and suddenly they become the center of worship in your life. And then God gets displaced. He gets put off to the side and you think, well, I'll just do it for the time being. I'll put him on the shelf for now, but I'll come back to him. But you don't because he just collects dust while you put all of your energy into this relationship. And what really sucks is if the relationship doesn't work out, then that person who became your idol becomes a source of deep hurt and wound for you. And so it's, that's why the relationships are poisoned. I'm not saying that it's wrong to, to go out with somebody, obviously, and we're all going to, if, if you go through a breakup, that's life, and, you know, Jamie and I are here to, you know, talk to you, and you can cry on our couch or whatever, but um, the thing is, but who are you getting into a relationship with? Is it somebody who loves and fears and serves the Lord, or is it somebody who's going to lead you astray from God and promote idolatry in your life? Who's going to say, no, 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 like, who cares about your, you know, sexual morals are outdated, who cares? Somebody who's going to push you to do things that you didn't want to do. Or somebody who's going to just bring you down or just bring down the way that you think. Somebody who's going to distract you from your mission, which is to serve Jesus with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So if there's a poisonous relationship, I'm telling you that Nehemiah illustrates this. It is poison because it will lead you astray. And he had to take an extreme stance in order to prevent that from happening. Now, God does not, and also this is the interesting thing too, we have to address the fact that in Ezra, it tells us the same story. It says that they sent away their wives, and you're like, wow, that sucks. So like God promotes divorce. Eh, not that easy. First of all, the word they use there is not the same as divorce. It says they sent them away. They may have provided some kind of housing for them or something like that, but also context is everything. This is not like it was, it may not have even been, it been a lifelong separation. It's unclear as to what exactly that was. But what we do know is this, that God was passionate about his people. In order to have their hearts, he needed to have all of them, including their marriages. Your relationships, the way you think about relationships, love, sex, all that stuff, actually is very, very much tied to who you are. And so because of that, its roots go deep inside of you, which is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 that we need to be careful of sexual sin because it has a, a unique ability to wreck our lives, unlike any other kind of sin. And so that's why we have to be wise. Just be wise about your relationships, you guys. I promise you it will pay off. I promise you that. Okay, lastly, then, then he, uh, it says that, you know, we have to also take note of this. One uh, commentator said, Nehemiah did not insist on the immediate dissolution of these marriages, but he caused the men to swear that they would desist from such connections, setting before them in verse 26 how grievous a sin they were committing. And he pointed out to them that at the height of our power, we had Solomon. Remember how Solomon was? Now, like, yeah, he wrote Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs, which is, 
kind of a racy one, you know, whatever. Like, he was a really great king. He was super wise. He wrote the book of Proverbs. And he's like, yeah, remember how his reign ended? Oh, yeah, foreign women led him astray. He started making sacrifices to other gods, and he completely forgot about the one god that he was supposed to be serving. And you know what happened after him? His son Rehoboam wrecked the, the entire kingdom. The civil war split the nation, and they, we have never been the same since. All because of one dude who made stupid relationship decisions. Don't! That's what he's saying. And obviously, he's probably saying more angrily than I am, because Nehemiah is super mad at this point, right? But he finally, it seems like he finally cools down, though. And he said, well, it seems like it. And, uh, because he's, and then he says, one of the sons of Joyada, the son of Elisha, the priest, was a son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Then he finds out that Sanballat the Horonite had married into one of the priest families. And then he goes, God, freaks out again. And then it says, I chased him from me. I love that. He literally just like, have you ever had a grown man <laughs> just chase you? Like, like, just like, I would be, if I just, imagine you step outside of here and you see some guy just go, <laughs> Like, what are you going to do? You're going to run for your life, right? And so, the, so priority one is about worship. Priority two is about business. Priority three that he addresses is about relationships. And he's like, he gets so mad that he literally chases somebody out the place. But I love this. Thus, I cleansed from them everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work. Verse 31, I provided the wood offering at appointed times and the first fruits. Lastly, he says, remember me, oh my God, for good. Z uh, what does he say? Zacharah li elohai batovah. Remember me, God, for good. Or have favor on me, oh God. And that is where the book of Nehemiah ends. See, true spirit-led leadership encourages sanctification. Encourages sanctification. See, uh, when it comes to sanctification, oh, there's not a marker up here. That's okay. So if this line right here represents you, see, this is the thing that, that Nehemiah didn't realize is that he was a great leader, but there was a greater leader coming. And he didn't realize what the preparation he was making was not just to make the people of God holy and separate from the world. He was setting aside a people so that God's promise could arrive. He was setting aside God's people so that the promise of God and the person and work of Jesus Christ could finally arrive. See, the problem is this. You and I are on this line here, and the scripture says that we are spiritually dead. If this is death, you can't get, you can't get alive <laughs> by just trying, okay? Because you're dead. So you're dead. <laughs> right, makes sense. This is the thing, though. Once you're in Christ, you say yes to Jesus, the Bible says that you begin this process called sanctification. It's where you begin to obey God out of joy and out of a response towards him. And here's the thing. That, that sanctification is like, this is who you're going to be in Christ, way up here. At the end of all things, you're going to be like Jesus up here. So it's like, here's Jesus, here's you, you want to become more like him. And it sort of goes like this, right? And at a slanted angle, but in reality, it's more like this. Like, it's a line that's kind of squiggly. It's like, we had good days and we had bad days. It's like, I was super disobedient today, super rebellious today. Other days, you're like, man, I was riding on Clyde, and I, me and Jesus, I was this close to seeing Jesus face to face. I know it. You know, like, in my quiet time, I heard, I swear I heard somebody. It turned out it was my dad in the other room, but still, it was like, I thought it was him. And, you know, or it's like, man, I prayed for, I saw a miracle happen, or I saw somebody get, I, I laid hands on somebody and they got healed. I, I spent some time in prayer that changed my life. I, I, I prophesied for the first time. I'm exercising the gifts of the Spirit. I'm growing in my character. I'm becoming more and more like Jesus, but it's hard work. And good leadership actually encourages sanctification. Good leadership actually encourages that. 
See, at the end of everything, what Nehemiah was prepping for, what he could not have understood, was that he was building up the walls of Jerusalem so that Jerusalem could be a city that was inhabited one day. See, there was a city that would be the center of, after Nehemiah's time, this is the significant thing about Nehemiah. After Nehemiah's time, there was 400 years of silence. And God stopped talking authoritatively through the prophets. And during that 400 years of silence, all that the people had was the promises of God written in scripture and the city that Nehemiah had built. If we have these things until the Messiah comes, we're gonna be okay. And a lot of other things happened in that 400 year period. But eventually what Nehemiah could never have predicted was that 400 years later, there would be a little baby born not far from Jerusalem in a stable by two poor people who couldn't even, didn't even have a place to stay. And so they had to lay him in the hay where the cows and the horses feed. And he would be worshipped by shepherds who saw angels in the fields. He would not be worshipped by kings. He would not be welcomed into the gates of Jerusalem as a conqueror. Although that would come later, those same people that would welcome him as a conqueror eventually rejected him and had him crucified outside the walls of that city. See, ultimately, when we want to look at a model of leadership, you want a legacy that endures, we look at Jesus, because his legacy has endured for over 2,000 years. And it will continue to endure, because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Because Jesus Christ is the name that before every the name above all names where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is the Lord. And one day we are going we look forward not to a day when there's not just going to be a city somewhere in the Middle East where God's presence is going to dwell, but we are going to look forward to the day when the new Jerusalem will come down from heaven and it'll be gleaming like the sun. And it says in the book of Revelation that it will no we will no longer even need the sun because the light of his glory will be enough to light up our lives. The streets are going to be paved with what looks like gold. It's like everything that was worth full of worth in our lives will be worthless. We won't even care. We'll be paving the streets with it because the only thing that will be ma- that will matter to us is the glory of our king. And the only thing that matters to us is that the city of God, the one that he envisioned in his heart in the very beginning, the city where people of all nations would come and they would come to worship the Lord. And it wouldn't just be for Israel. It would be for Native Americans and for, for Asians and for, for people from Europe and from Africa and, and all over the world. They would all come to the city of God and in the blood of Jesus, they would all be able to bow down before him and say, Hail the king! That was the day that God had in his heart. Nehemiah could not possibly have seen that when he built up Jerusalem. But the point is he was preparing a way. This is just a model, just a fraction of the great city that God is going to bring down. And one day we'll see it with our own eyes. And the only way you'll get to enter into those gates and you'll see the city of God is if you give your life to Jesus. So if you're here tonight, And you don't know anything about Jesus. He's somebody who lived 400 years after Nehemiah in the Middle East. He was a 30-year-old peasant who performed miracles. And then he claimed he was God. Either he was right or he was wrong about that. But he was crucified for it. They murdered him. They hung him up on a cross to die for it. And so, I want, this is the thing, like, we can look at that historical account of what happened to Nehemiah, what happened to Jesus, We can learn lots of lessons about leadership. We can learn lots of lessons about sanctification. But at the end of the day, all I want you guys to do is to know Jesus and to follow him with everything you've got. You've only got this life. Do you get that? I know that you're young. I know that you guys are in college or you're just graduated from college. 
you have a lot of life ahead of you, but this is the life, the life that you have. What's going to be at the center of it? Is your life going to be filled with busyness? Is your life going to be, be marked by poisonous relationship after poisonous relationship? Is your life going to be marked by neglecting the things of God, by apathy and laziness? Or is your life going to be marked by something that matters? There was a friend of mine, Keith, uh, Keith Hazel. He was, a, he was a prophet and a leader in LifeLinks uh, International. And he traveled around the world. At 16 years old, he preached the gospel in his church. And he got kicked out of his church for preaching the gospel because he was preaching about the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues and, and the prophetic and just talking about some radical things and saying Jesus wants to unleash this stuff on the church and like, yeah, get out of here. So 16 years old, he went out to the street corner and preached out there because outside of his church because they wouldn't let him preach in the church building. Amen. <laughs> Keith would spend the rest of his life preaching the gospel and helping to plant and build up churches throughout the world. In China, he helped, helped with underground churches in China, Vietnam, Southern Canada, the northern United States, including River City Church. And one of the things that I read about him that really struck me was when he was he was struck with cancer. And his son, um, they, he was at his deathbed. And Keith was looking at his son, Jeremy, and he just he said, Dad, do you have any regrets? And he's like, I would do it all again, living for Jesus. Nothing else matters. I would do it all again. That's what I want to say on my deathbed. And one day, when I enter the city of God, I want to enter just screaming and shouting and hardcore dancing because it's going to be a good time. <laughs> What's at the center of your life? And of those things that were listed, which of those things hits you the hardest? Think about that. <coughs> this Christmas season, the biggest gift that you could probably give is your life to Jesus. Give him everything you've got. Everything. And I guarantee he will not disappoint. We're going to forego the normal uh, small group session. Aiden, you want to come on up? But I encourage you guys after Regenerate tonight to talk with each other about this. What have you learned from Nehemiah? What have you learned from this book of the Bible? And now for this week's announcements. So first things first, we will not be having worship night this week just because it's the end of the semester and all that stuff. But if you want to be in the worship night, text updates things, let us know so that you can know when it is happening and when it's not happening. Yeah. Um, also, this is the last regenerate of the semester and we will resume next semester once you all come back from Christmas break. Seven. Um, their address is up on the screen, seven. and um, yeah, that's all I have for you. So.